Hi, I'm Lynette from Lean Pub, and in this podcast, I'll be interviewing Chris Harches. Based in Milton, in the Canadian province of Ontario, Chris is a senior quality assurance engineer for Mozilla, and he tweets and writes under the identity of the Grumpy Programmer. You can check out his website at grumpy-learning.com, read his blog at littleheart.net, listen to his podcast at uh, devhell.info, and you can follow Chris on Twitter at Grumpy Programmer. Just remember to not include the U. Um, Chris is the author of a number of LeanPub books, the latest two of which are Minimum Viable Tests and Building Test-Driven Developers. In this interview, we're going to talk about Chris's professional interests, his books, and uh, at the end, we'll talk a little bit about LeanPub Shop, if there's anything left to talk about after all this time. Um, I should mention that um, uh, this is actually the first time I've interviewed someone for the second time for the LeanPub podcast. Um, Chris has been around uh, for years, uh, writing great books and making great content, and we really appreciate him. Uh, being a Lean Pub author, so thank you, Chris, for being on the Lean Pub podcast. Thanks for having me, Len. Yeah, it's uh, four years. I know we were talking about this in the email before, but yeah, four years ago um, we first talked, and boy, has it been a very strange journey uh, that entire time. Yeah, well, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about that. Normally, I start um, these interviews by asking people for their origin story, but um, we've already gone through that probably four years ago. So maybe we could talk a little bit about what's happened since uh, since then. Um, I know you've moved on to uh, Mozilla. Um, yeah, it's like uh, maybe a year and a half ago, the opportunity um, came up to take a job at Mozilla um, working. Uh, I mean, the, the the title of the team keeps changing, but but these days it's Firefox Test Engineering is the group that I'm with. And, um, and so, you know, we're the group responsible for testing just about everything to do with Firefox, uh, the browser itself, any web properties that Mozilla maintains. Um, and the services that the browser talks to, and that's that's my focus at, uh, at Mozilla. The team I work with, um, pretty small one, and all I do all day long is fill around with on creating uh, uh, specialized testing tools, mainly with PyTest, just to make sure that the the um, services that your browser talks to are, are working correctly. It's it's a very different environment where the stuff that you're working on, that it is literally millions of people are going to be relying on the thing to work correctly. It's a very, very different feeling from previous places I've worked. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Um, I was speaking to someone not all that long ago who works for a um, very big and famous um, software uh, company and um, uh, he talked about how they had recently merged development and testing teams. It was a big, a big decision. Um, and I was wondering uh, if, if you could talk a little bit about what the environment is like at, at um, Mozilla, where, you know, as you say, you know, millions of people are going to be touched by everything that you do. Do you, do you work in our testing and development sort of separate? Are they combined in some way? I, w I would say probably the best way to describe it is that the QA teams, uh, QA people are embedded with the developers. I work very, very closely with the developers for all the projects that I'm doing QA work for. Um, you know, as a, as a longtime developer myself, I mean, uh, it's, this is a, I couldn't believe this when I started sitting down and thinking about this. Like, this is my 20th year of doing software development. So I've been doing this for like a really super long time. And the first 18 were just as a developer doing mostly PHP stuff. And I have found that that experience as a developer has really, really helped when it came time to, to talk to the developers for the various services and say, hey, you know, I kind of want to know what you guys are working on. 
And in some cases where most of the time I'm testing APIs, I can talk to them about stuff like, you know, we need some hooks in there so I can automate things a lot easier. Um, you know, uh, what features are you working on? Are there new things I should be uh, adding to the test plan? So, um, yeah, I work very, very closely with the developers, and, and I would like to think I have a really good relationship with the developers. Very few of them I've come into conflict with, and most of them are most of them are just kind of happy that the QA people even seem to care about uh, what they're doing. Because there's always been that, you know, that perception that it's always QA versus development, that, you know, QA's job only ever seems to be finding the mistakes of the development team. And, I mean, I can certainly sympathize with with uh, with the developers who feel that way. And at the same time, the QA people are thinking that the developers don't care and are expecting the QA people to find all the all the bugs uh, in their product. Um, that hasn't been my experience with the, the people at Mozilla. It, it's been quite refreshing. And it's been an interesting shift where I was looking at my GitHub contributions the other day because I was just kind of wondering what's going on with that. And I found that, you know, even though I'm doing QA work, um, the pace of my contributions on GitHub, because everything I, I do at Mozilla is open source and available for anyone to see, which again is a very, very different way of working. And, you know, in the past year I've done like 470 uh, contributions, so commits and stuff on GitHub, which is crazy, more than, you know, more than one per calendar day. Um, you know, so I, I still get to uh, keep those development skills going because I do, like I said, I do a lot of Python stuff. And so I am constantly writing scripts and, and creating tools and doing stuff like that. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, your experience with, you know, changes in, um, you know, perhaps in the way uh, in software development practices in the last few years. I mean, four years is a long time uh, in in the tech world. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's I, one thing on this podcast, I've, I've had the pleasure of interviewing people who, you know, engage in software development in lots of different ways. Um, uh, twice, um, the sort of metaphor of, um, software testing being like a mark, well, security testing and, and QA being like a martial art has come up. Um, and there's something interesting to me about the adversarial nature that people can fall into that you were just invoking. Um, is, is there, is that something that do you think that has sort of evolved in a positive way in the last few years? You know, is our, our managers less likely to just sort of sick two teams on each other or things like that? Um, you know, I think it's definitely changed for the positive. I, you know, if we go back even more than four years, you know, when I was, when I first, uh, you know, discovered unit testing and the, and all the, all the skills and tools that I was going to have to figure out how to learn in order to just make that stuff work. You know, I've gone from at conferences where I would ask people, how many of you were writing tests from your code? You know, at the beginning 10 years ago, it used to be just a few people raising their hands. And now most places were, you know, upwards of 50% of the developers I talked to um, have written at least one test. And I think it's just, uh, you know, uh, there's almost like there's been a tipping point. There comes a point where the tools are widely available. The skills and practices at a base level are, um, widely known. So it literally comes down to now where people are choosing not to use these tools instead of, whereas, yeah, they used to be difficult to use because there was very few people who were going around telling people about them and showing them how to use them. And, and so as, as more and more people have adopted these tools, that adversarial thing I talked about, um, it, it started to shift and, and, and go away just because the nature of software development now is that, you know, for a person like me who was a, you know, a server side developer for so many years, the, the, 
the toolkit that you need to master just to build a web app these days. It's just ridiculous. It's not only a server-side scripting language, but you have to worry about JavaScript code and 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 CSS and, and well-formed HTML, and then all the tools that go along with using those. Uh, asset compression tools like Gulp and, and um, Webpack and, and all sorts of stuff that just keeps popping up to try to solve a problem that people are having. So at the same time, people's responsibilities are going up as well. It's very rare that you get a developer that works on something and they have no responsibility to test what they're doing at all. And I think as people started, uh, you know, using these testing tools and writing their own tests and getting out of the habit of, you know, uh, save and refresh the browser being their main way to test, they've gotten an appreciation of everything that goes into it. And, and I think that's made dealing with QA people um, a lot less adversarial because people finally understand, okay, I can... I can write code that has fewer bugs. There are tools that support me, but at the same time, you know, the QA people, you know, we're actually here to help. It, I mean, it doesn't do me any good uh, to be difficult with the developers that I'm that I'm working with to, to create that adversarial relationship. It benefits nobody. I mean, maybe at some organizations they have a long history of that sort of, you know, you know, where the developers are literally throwing stuff over the wall to be tested. But that's that seems to be you know happening less and less frequently, and it's definitely for the better. Uh, you know, these days the tools are so easy to install, and and to learn the basics is very easy. So there's no reason that uh, a developer, a halfway competent developer, uh, you know, can't learn those testing skills and get a better appreciation for how much work can actually go into making sure the application is meeting all the business needs and the users' needs, and and we can just kind of get away from sloppiness and laziness and and understanding the goal is to deliver value, and and this extra time we're spending fixing bugs that we could have caught is actually having real costs. It costs companies money in terms of overtime and burnt out developers and and you know all sorts of other kind of personal things that people uh, I find anyway never really think about. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Um, in your latest book, Building Test Driven Developers, you talk about the two major forces that work against developing a kind of test driven culture. And I think you just talked about how the first one um, is being mitigated, which is simply learning. Um, has been, you know, mitigated or improved by the development of tools and, and just better knowledge. But the second one, which you just touched on, um, that you talk about is, quote, um, the work culture pressure that says you don't have time to write tests, um, end quote, where, you know, um, people often seem to, you know, say a, a manager might be like driven to hit a deadline. And so in their world, um, uh, testing is a waste of time. Any or they'll they want to do as little testing as they can, is that not speaking about you know your necessarily your personal experience where you work, but you know in general, do you see that when you talk to people, do you see that work culture pressure oh, changing? Oh, absolutely. Well, do I see it changing? Um, yeah, but there's still you know it, it's ironic as the tools become more generally available, uh, you know, in many ways you know software development. Has become more of a, a more of a, like a startup-driven thing than a support for the business idea. So yeah, there are lots and lots of people under serious time pressures, and you know, and that's the one big discovery I, I had even before I did the latest book, because I've been wanting to find ways to talk about that. Like you know, I've spent more than enough time talking about here's how you use this testing framework, and here's how you create test doubles, and understanding you know, teaching people the common pattern of uh, you know, arrange, act, assert, all that kind of technical side of 
of testing. But what people, the, where people need the most help now is that personal side. Because, you know, you're right. We talked about this, the pressure. A lot of managers, you're right. They look at this and go, this testing is extra time. And it's taking up time from things I want the team to be doing instead. But but at the same time, you have to understand that you know every bug that somehow makes it out of your development environment and for your users to see, there's real costs to, to getting that bug fixed. And sometimes they're, you know, really quick things. It's a syntax error or, you know, or, or the, the data wasn't what you expected. But sometimes they can be catastrophic. They can be things like, you know, you accidentally deleted, uh, you know, the, the database that contains all the, all, you know, all your users' information. Or, you know, uh, you leave a big, huge, gaping security hole in your application. So that's the part I think most people are still are having a really hard time wrapping their brain around. And it's even worse for managers, especially for the, you know for people that maybe they've they've never done development work, or when they used to do development work, these tools didn't exist, or if they did exist, they were really difficult to use. So you kind of discounted them. And there is always this pressure: go faster, get more done. But I mean, I've seen time and time again where this constant drive, keep moving forward, new features. We don't have time to test. Let's just get this done. Everybody's got to stay late. I mean, I've been through all those and I've seen how it just demoralizes teams and costs companies way more money um, and time than they realize. And that's really, that's just so interesting to me because, you know, one would um, expect that the interests of, say, not just the managers, but also the executives above them would you know their interests would all be aligned towards producing the best product that causes the fewest problems you know once it's deployed is as effective as it's as it can be at you know generating profit and yet somehow there's this strange disconnect that one sees time and time again you know and a, a, an example that's come up um, on this podcast quite a few times is um, healthcare.gov in the states where you know, there was this huge effort, like on which people's, you know, bodies, you know, were, uh, were, were affected by it, um, their lives, um, their uh, pocketbooks. And it was of huge political significance and consequence. And yet somehow uh, it was a total disaster. And I think a lot of people wonder, you know, how is it that, you know, say a, an executive in charge of an effort like that won't just sit down and use it? How do they end up being in charge of something <laughs> that what is it about that culture that means, you know, well, for example, we still we still have people who think of uh, programmers as 400 pound guys in their mom's basement. Um, <laughs> as someone, someone famous famously said recently, in the United States. you know, do you I just it's generally and I know it's the sort of view from 30,000 feet. But, you know, do you see that culture, that executive culture changing generally? Or is that staying the same? I mean, are people coming, do you think people are coming out of their MBA programs with more respect for the computer person now than they had in the past? I, my honest opinion is no. I think it's still pretty much the same. Uh, and, you know, um, there's this tendency that I've seen in people, and this is not just computer people, but this is like people in general. Um, a lot of people have a very hard time with um, empathy and with um, looking at uh, looking at things from uh, a different person's point of view, or, or the ability to like adopt a different mindset and say, if I was the understanding that there's a difference between the the person signing the checks and the person that's managing the developers and the developers and the people that have to use 
this thing that you're asking people to build. People forget that not everyone else is like them. So the things that motivate them are not necessarily the things that motivate other people or even, you know, the user uh, of this thing you're trying to build. You talk about the healthcare.gov. I mean, luckily, it sure looks like after the initial launch, somebody grabbed hold of the reins and said, look, we can fix this. There's a better way. We need to get this fixed. So it sure sounds like they brought some people in and saved what was clearly a disastrous launch. But this is a problem too. Like there's all this, there's all this arrogance combined with lack of, of domain knowledge that just causes weird things like this to happen. You mentioned the MBAs. Well, you know, uh, you know, you know, I don't hate business people. I understand the role of business people. I don't hate marketing people. I become a marketer myself. You know, in the process of writing my books. But at the same time, there's this ridiculous amount of arrogance of people that think because they've studied a bunch of business stuff at university, they can go into they can go and solve any problem by applying what they learned at university. It's like if you don't understand the problem you're actually trying to solve, um, you know, you're in for a world of hurt when 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 the software project goes on. If you look at healthcare.gov, the goal, overarching goal of that thing should have been we need to find a way to sign up the most number of people possible who are looking to get health uh, looking to get health insurance, right? In the US. That should have been the overarching goal. Nothing else should have deviated from that goal. We need this thing to work and be rock solid and accomplish the goal of allowing people to easily sign up to get um, uh, health insurance. Anything else is is not going to lead to success. So I still see, and, and in my informal discussions with both my peers and and people that ask me questions about stuff, it's still there. The the people, often the people who are in charge of the developers, don't understand the problem you're actually trying to solve. Um, they're there for all sorts of reasons. They could be, you know, they could be the the founder of the company. They have the idea and don't understand why it's so hard to implement it. It could be former it could be former uh, developers who maybe weren't so good at the developing part and so you know wanted to figure that a better path for them was to to manage people. So they bring all their own kind of weird prejudices and misunderstandings about um, about software development, like anybody has, into a management position. So it's like it's never like one thing that causes these failures. It's like it's a combination of like developers who resent the people giving them the orders and the people who are giving the orders not understanding the problem they're trying to solve. And then the people who are telling the managers what to do, uh, you know, looking at and going, I understand this seems so simple. Why can't we make this work? You know, because as as my latest book talks about the biggest problem in software, it's really not deciding what language to use and what other technologies. It's people because it's people who are building these things and people are infallible and people make mistakes and people have all these weird unconscious reactions to things. And you like, you know, it's it, it just causes such weirdness in, in software development in, in general. And while I think, you know, the tools are getting better and we can create more things faster, there's still this problem of like managing and understanding people. And that's the part that at this point I'm trying to help people with. It's really interesting you bring up um, empathy um, and uh, yeah, and the, the, the people side of things um, and weirdness. Um, you reminded me of, I was doing some research a while ago and had to watch a, an annual conference by a big company. Um, and the, the executives, you know, who were on stage were very pleased with themselves and trotted out with, I would say, contempt, the engineers. Um, and it was very clear it was staged that the engineers weren't allowed to wear suits. Um, like the executives were, they were sort of dressed up to look like an engineer, um, uh, according to some kind of stereotype. 
Um, and it was just very odd to witness the theater of contempt uh, that was being played out. I mean, here, here you are running a, it was a tech company. Um, uh, everything you do comes down to the things that the people build. And yet somehow there was internally this very f familiar, but nonetheless weird culture where you needed to really, it needed to be really hammered home that there was a distinction between the people running the business side of things and the people doing the, let's call it the labor. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, again, you know, this is just a weird people thing. It's, you know, I mean, I'm not, and generally speaking, I'm not a big fan of, of you know, venture capitalism and, and the Silicon Valley mindset and just throwing lots of money at problems, you know, and we're, we're talking about things like, you know, we want to create self-driving cars when there's ways we can make existing cars safer. And, and we're talking about terraforming Mars when, how about, you know, we should be looking at how can we make earth more livable? You know, it's just, it's just, just this weird combination of, of, of opportunities for people, um, to have their strengths greatly amplified and their weaknesses totally ignored because in the pursuit of money. I mean, uh, I've told people, you know, if you're like an uh, like a severe introvert, but you're good at computers, and so you think that a career in, in software development is going to be good, well, you're going to be really disappointed because to get anything of any significance done in your career, you're going to have to deal with people and talk to people. There are very few places left, I would imagine, in North America where the, uh, you know, that the autistic slash Asperger computer genius who nobody can talk to, who sits in a cubicle somewhere with their headphones on and cranks out all this beautiful code and everything just works all the time without interacting with anybody else. That's like the most ridiculous myth I could think of to tell people that like stereotypes, like, no, you, you're never going to get a chance to be that person. You're, you're, you're writing code. You're a person writing code for other people to solve problems. And you're going to have to talk to people. And so, you know, so, but then again, you get this, the, the kind of corporate driven culture. And I don't know if, 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 you know, MBAs have something to do with this, but the idea of that, the suits are in charge to use a nice, you know, pejorative comment. And then that, the engineers are just resources to get stuff done. Well, you're starting to dehumanize people. And believe me, people know when you're doing it to them. And then they're going to get resentful of the people who are in charge. And then you just end up with this weird thing where you have the developers are contemptuous of the people asking them to do stuff. And then at the same time, then they start hating the people that are using uh, their products. I mean, if you don't think that people like Google or Facebook like – have developed this weird contempt for the people that use their tools because maybe they're not using them in the way that they think they should use them. I mean, like you haven't been paying attention to anything, you know, like talk to your peers. I had, I had lots of stories about people who are resentful about the people who use this thing. And then I remind them, yeah, those people don't use that thing. Your paycheck doesn't show up, you know? Uh, it's uh, like I say, it's just that whole, the focus on money and big moonshots and we're doing these weird things. Cause I want to, disrupt and save the world when there's so many things that programmers could help to make just, you know, regular people's lives a little bit better by improving a lot of terrible systems for them. It just gets lost in, in the, in the, in this whole like contempt culture where the techies think they're better than the executives who think they're better than the techies and better. Like, it's just this weird cyclone of despair and people get sucked into it and, pretty soon you're in this bubble where everyone else is like you. And then the goal just becomes, I want to make as much money as I quickly can. And I'm not worried about the consequences um, of the things that I'm doing, you know?
Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I'm really glad you brought up, you know, the other, the, uh, there's many, there's contempt coming uh, from many sides uh, in, in all, in, you know, this type of activity. And uh, that actually, that's a really interesting topic that I like to think about quite a bit, which is user contempt. Um, especially because, you know, if, if you um, are using, say, Gmail, um, you know, for example, one thing that uh, their designers have decided to do is to hide information from you. Um, so if you type in the two email address, it then hides the email address and shows you the person's name. Uh, and then if you, if you select your from email address and then you go to write, it hides, it actually completely hides the from email address that you're sending from. And this kind of thing, like, you know, it's, it might sound trivial to someone, but you know, if you've ever had a job where, you know, you could go to jail for disclosing information to people that you weren't supposed to disclose, um, hiding that stuff is just really punishing, um, to the user. And yet I've heard, I've heard this from different designers saying things like, well, but I don't want to look at that. I don't want to look at that email address. I know what email address I typed in. You know, what kind of idiot wouldn't know what they just typed in? Um, and it's, I just wanted, I guess I wanted to ask you your opinion about like, you know, what does that, is there an explanation for where that comes from that, you know, well, I, I understand what you're saying, but I wouldn't want to look at that and I wouldn't want to use it that way. So I'm just going to design it and dump it on humanity, um, based on my personal <laughs> preference. Yeah. I mean, uh, if we're going to be honest about it, it's really about arrogance and, and, you know, and thinking that, you know, that, um, maybe that weird kind of paternalistic view that like I, I know better than you. And so because I'm the domain expert, because I'm the designer and I've built a bazillion interfaces that I like, if you don't like what I'm doing, well, the problem is not with me. The problem is with you. So this is how we end up with, you know, poorly thought out interfaces. And, um, and this kind of idea, like you're talking about, like, why is this information being hidden from me? You know, if I'm typing an email address, you know, maybe I want to make sure, like, what if I know, I mean, this is certain in this day and age, it is certainly not strange for one person to have multiple email addresses. Well, how am I going to make sure I'm sending this to the right person's email? I mean, I have a work email. I have, you know, I have an email address for my, uh, for my side business for grumpy learning. I have that old ancient email address for littleheart.net, which is a domain that I've owned since 1998. I mean, if someone wants to send me one, okay, sure. I eventually read them all, but what if I want, what, what if I need to send an email to a very, to a person's very specific address? Maybe they have a secret email address. They're like, please only send responses here. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like it's this idea. It's it's very easy when you work in this industry and only interact with people who are doing the same jobs as you. You forget that everyone's not like you. So you get these weird interface decisions. I mean, even uh, one of the more interesting and frustrating things is to watch, um, you know, non-technical people like my wife or my mother or even my kids uh, who don't share the same love of computer stuff as I do, watching them interact with the same systems that I use every day and watching how different their experience is, how the way that they've chosen to do things. Often it's very, very different 
um, from how I've chosen to use it. And, you know, a few times I've wanted to grab the device out of their hand and go, no, you do this. You click here and press here and press here and press here. But it's, you know, it's, it's my experiences are so, are, are so different. And I, and I've learned to like, uh, I've learned to not tolerate a lot of the nonsense that I see, whereas so many people are just like, well, this is just, I guess this is just the way it is. I mean, how many people do these, I see people's uh, solutions to problems are these crazy workarounds. I'm like, it would be way easier if you would just tell the person that this thing isn't working and they would, and they will probably fix it for you. So, you know, it's the bubble bubbles are the biggest problem in the tech industry. When, when you work, uh, you know, especially in a, in a culture where you're spending a lot of your hours, um, at your job and you're only ever hanging out with people who like, you know, maybe same race as you, same socioeconomic status as you, they're doing the same work, you're spending all these hours with them, not just during your work hours, but outside of work. It's very easy to get caught in that little bubble that everyone around you uh, is expecting the same things. And that's, I think that's something that has been really, really lost as software is busy eating so many uh, parts uh, of our society that people aren't understanding that you you're you shouldn't be creating interfaces for yourself you should be creating interfaces for people that know nothing and they have to be able to instantly figure out um what it is that you want even me seasoned tech guy when the first time i saw the kiosk at mcdonald's because a lot of mcdonald's uh around where i am they're getting rid of the, a lot of the cash registers and you have kiosks you know that you can order from with touchscreen even those aren't as clear um, as they could be. They're getting better because I do notice subtle changes when I go back. But, you know, it's the same type of thing. You built a system that you like, but there's no guarantee that the people who actually have to use it are going to like it. It's really interesting uh, bringing that you brought up um, socioeconomic status and all the other kinds of, you know, bubbles that one can be in and the way that one can lose sensitivity. And this is, I guess, you know, a bit in, in the weeds of design. But um, uh, one thing I've noticed with... Um, a certain um, payment processor is that it began serving up um, circle faces and names automatically uh, to me when I was making payments. Um, and of course, a circle face and a name are not the same thing as an email address to which something is being sent. Um, and information was starting to be hidden, like, you know, actually how much you were sending, actually where it was going. When you completed the transaction, you just saw a check mark or something rather than the transaction details. And it, it struck me when I encountered this that, you know, whoever, everybody working on this who has any authority about what gets deployed in the end, uh, none of them has ever been in a situation where if they made a mistake sending that 50 bucks, you know, grandma wasn't going to be able to get her bus ticket to come visit for Christmas. You know, like there was no sensitivity to how catastrophic it can be for someone to make what might to someone who's, you know, say sailed through computer science and got a job. Yeah. Right no, away. no, definitely. No sense definitely. to the, the, those little, and it seems like little things, but like, you know, as you were saying about you know, when you're working for certain types of products, like it can be millions and millions and millions of people that can be affected by these things. And especially where money and communications are concerned, you know, people can often, uh, yes, not, have that kind of sensitivity because it just doesn't correspond to their personal experience. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. You know, yeah, you know, Lynn, I'm sure you've heard that thing where people have talked about, like, you know, uh, so many of these startups and other things are like solving the problems of like, you know, uh, rich white 20 somethings who are living away from home for the first time. So they're reinventing all these services that were, you know, doing things that their parents might have done for them. This is why you have all the, you know, the food delivery places and laundry services and Uber to so, so someone can drive you around and all these other things, this whole ecosystem that gets created where people like creating services for themselves. And, you know, I, I always feel there's like this, this friction between the idea of, you know, create something to to solve a problem for yourself or something to scratch an itch. But at the same time, it's like the people have this fantasy idea that, oh, I'm solving this problem. And then like millions of other people are, are going to want this solution in the same way. And, you know, it's I've, I've, like, again, so much of this, I think so much of this is because I, you know, I didn't work. I, I missed out on one of the first tech bubbles when I got out of college and, and I've never really worked for, um, you know, for one of the big Silicon Valley types, because Mozilla is a very, very weird place in that it's it's a nonprofit. So our motivations are much, much different than somebody like Google or somebody like Facebook. And so, like, I never worked in that culture. I never got opportunity to do it because, you know, early on in my career, I made the decision. The thing that mattered to me was the work life balance and working from home because my because I felt it was better for my family. Um uh, to be home. So I missed out on getting immersed into that, that whole thing that we've been talking about, the, the bubble, the long hours, you're constantly surrounded by people um, just like yourself. And pretty soon you're all kind of thinking the same. And then you end up just solving problems for your small group of friends instead of like, you know, like big time problems that benefit people outside of your little immediate circle. This is the thing I wish developers could like, somehow we can make this easy for people to say, how about we, how about we solve like, like real problems for people, like problems that, that people who aren't lucky enough to have a $3,500 laptop and a nice six figure paying um, job where we're solving in some cases, very trivial problems for very little game. Whereas there's so many ways that, you know, that we could be helping people out there, you know, so, you know, even things like to, to ramble a little bit, let's, let's take a look at something like, for example, uh, the tragedy that happened in Flint, Michigan, with their water system getting compromised because somebody made a monetary decision. Let's temporarily switch over, flowing the water through this different set of pipes, and then the pipes turned out to be contaminated with high levels of lead. And for like almost three years, there have been lots of people who uh, have uh, don't have safe drinking water. They've been drinking bottled water and bathing with bottled water and doing all these things. There's so many things that people could have done to help these people get organized once, a, once there was a way to help them. People could have been helping to create tools to track which houses are experiencing problems with the water. Who need, you know, who needs their plumbing fixed? Who's behind on their on their water bills? And now nobody's offering to fix anything for them until their water bills get paid. Like people want to joke about social justice warriors and people wanting to like turn around and give stuff back. That's the thing that's still really, really missing, in my opinion, an unwillingness of people in the tech industry with with money and resources to help somebody other than a really narrow group of people. And the, and that creates resentment. You have all these people that look probably look at people like me and think that I have a useless job and I'm not doing anything important. Again, that's opinion, and we've got to be careful to not substitute opinion for fact. But at the end of the day, I'm the thing I work on is used by millions and millions of people. And the stuff that I do is used by people who are not like me, and I'm helping provide them value by making sure the things that they need to work on, that they work. 
that they need to use, that they work and they work correctly and things aren't behaving unexpectedly. And like, I don't think you can discount the feeling that, that you can get when you're actually solving problems for people other than, like I said before, people who look just like you. This bubble and lack of empathy is really starting to grind the tech industry down. And I think most people in the tech industry aren't even aware that it's a problem. Yeah. And um, as you, you mentioned earlier, you know, with, um, you know, uh, Mark Andreessen's phrase with software eating the world. I mean, one thing I think uh, that, you know, people might be coming to understand more and more is just how much the way software is made and the decisions that are made when it's made affect so much of life. Um, you know, the way things are shipped from one place to another, the way things are designed, in the, including physical things, are designed in the first place. I mean, it, you know, it just the decisions about how software are built go, you know, all the way down. And even people who, you know, might not use computers um, uh, might not know how much these, how much the culture around software development actually uh, makes a big difference. Um, yeah, you know, that, that, that's the thing. I think that, like, I think the average person uh, may have a vague understanding of, uh, of how much the world around them and all the, all the things they interact with, how much of it is software? Like you think about uh, most people in, in North America anyway, the penetration of smartphones is ridiculously um, high. So people are walking around with with computers in their pockets all the time. Uh, cars these days are essentially computers on wheels. All, all, these, all these automated systems, phone systems, the banking system. Uh, I, I mean, I could go on and on and talk for hours about this, but people don't understand. Like, you're right. There's all this software they're interacting, and most of the people interacting with it had no say in how any of these things got built and how it was decided who was going to do what. And you're at the mercy of a system that you have no ability to impact or change. You know, if if some automated system uh, glitches and decides that you own the bank, you owe the bank 20 grand for something when you don't owe them anything – digging yourself out of that unless you know you're like in a really good socio socioeconomic position you know it could wreck you it could wreck you permanently uh, wreck you uh, affect your life in a way that you never thought was possible as more and more things shift over from people being a uh, people behind them to some faceless algorithm that somebody wrote a lot of developers are are kind of wiping their hands of it and saying, oh, no, it's the system that decided uh, you were to be randomly screened for something. Or it was the system that spit out something saying that you that you owe us money or you were, you know, or you were late on your taxes or or sent you, uh, you know, it cost our company ten dollars to send you a bill that says you owe us a penny. I mean, th these decisions, they all keep piling up and we end up with with these systems where, you know, I, I tell people. You know, what, what's it going to be like when you go to a restaurant and there's there's not actually a person there? You know, you're trying to order food or if you're trying to do something when these automated systems that we are seem to be rushing headlong towards building, what happens when they go wrong? And there's no person there that can help you can say, oh, if this is the system's fault and we're going to get it fixed when there's nobody around to help you. This is going to be like even worse. Like, you know, there's the idea of the of the customer service person. By the surly person behind the counter who doesn't really care about your pro about your problem and is just there because there's working as a job. That's even going to be worse when there's actually nobody with any emotion who's like responsible for what's happened to you. Uh, you know, ch um, paychecks being held when they're not supposed to be. Uh, identity theft. I mean, just there's there's all these things that automated systems just. The pain of them are amplified by systems where there's no people involved and the people can't stop them from doing the wrong thing. Yeah, it's really interesting when you talk about, um, you know, the 
consequences. And I mean, I'm going to go, go, um, onto the subject of your books and, you know, your, your, um, particular subject of testing, but sure. just, just recently, um, I think all BA flights, British Airways flights at Heathrow, uh, were canceled for like a day or, or longer. Um, and when you think about the incredible amount of personal and economic disruption, uh, you know, that can cause, um, it really brings home the importance of something that otherwise might sound, you know, uh, boring like testing but actually it's crucial it's as, it's as crucial as it's as crucial as the doctor or the, or the surgeon washing their hands properly uh before before going in there um and i wanted to ask you there's something and and, and of course as as you would um you know of course say uh, testing can actually be really interesting and i wanted to ask you um in minimum viable tests you talk about um how much you enjoy magic the gathering Game and the, uh, and you talk about the meta game that um, you know people who are the true pros uh, can use to help win tournaments, and then you you use that as a sort of metaphor for um, an approach that one can take to testing. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit to people about the magic meta game and then how it how it can apply to you know quality assurance and things. Like yeah, that. sure. No, yeah, that, that, the idea of like meta testing being being this idea. So a quick refresher, hopefully people don't fall asleep while I, while I talk about the most infuriating hobby possible. So you know we look at we look at Magic the Gathering, which on the surface is a children's card game where some of the cards can cost you know thousands of dollars to buy them on the secondary market. So you look at this game. This game has a set of rules. Uh, about how you play the game, right? So there's the game itself, which consists of, you know, usually people playing each other one-on-one, -on -one, and there's a bunch of rules that govern all the interactions that you get to do, what cards you can use in the game, and how they all interact with each other under the rules. But, uh, and you can create your own, um, you create your own decks depending on the rules of the game. And so I always tell people magic in many ways is imagine chess if they kept making new chess pieces. I think that's kind of the best analogy I can give people about magic. So at the same time, we have the game itself. But then on top of it, we have what people refer to as the metagame, which is information about for a, for a given um, the magic is divided into different formats where different cards from different eras are are allowed to be played. So for a, for a specific format, there's even rules about about what types of decks can be built and how those and and what decks are successful and what aren't. So if you want to be like a very uh, competitive player uh, of the game, you have to understand the metagame. You have to understand what tactics are people likely to use, what cards are they likely to use, what card, you know, in in terms of what decks perform well against other decks, and what are some tricks that I can use to give myself an edge in a matchup um, where things aren't uh, aren't necessarily going to go my way. So so it struck me that if we if we can look at uh, you know software testing in kind of a similar vein there's there's the the testing tools themselves and kind of the rules about how you test and in this case i'm i'm, I'm talking about mostly the the kind of n unit um style test that kent beck and the extreme programming folks came up with in the 1980s the idea of the assertion we're doing a bunch of work and then we're we know we know ahead of time what the answer is supposed to be and then we run our code and get to do a bunch of stuff and at the end of it we're doing an assertion that says yes i'm getting back a response that i'm expecting so that's like the game of testing but if you look at the meta game of testing or meta testing as i labeled it in that one book there's all these things you need to know just to be proficient so it's not enough to understand the game of 
here's how I here's how I write a test. You need to understand the tools. How do I use these tools? You need to understand for a particular programming language what you know what features of the language are 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 easily incorporated into testing and what aren't. And at the same time, if I have multiple tools available, which tools are better suited for what I'm trying to do? You know, if, if what techniques are better suited for what I'm trying to do. So it's the, when I when I wrote minimum viable test, uh, I had sat down one time because I was going to do a uh, um, a conference talk, and I want to talk about all the stuff I thought you needed to know just to get started. I was just astounded at how much stuff you, one person, would have to learn, and how difficult that would be to learn on your own. And so I wanted to kind of highlight in that book. Here's here's the basics, the bare minimum that me, a person who's very experienced at doing this stuff, thinks that you need to learn just to get started. So that was kind of the idea of the meta testing. It's, it's not enough just to know how to write a test. You have to understand how all these tools and how all these moving pieces fit together. And they can coalesce in um, different strategies or styles. And you talk about in your book about the London school and the Chicago school. Yes. And was, yeah. Again, right. If, yeah, if you could talk. Sure. Developers what, have to. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Sorry, I started to talk over you there. Oh, that's man. okay. Um, but but yeah, so I, of course, you know, programmers love their tribalism and they love to sim, uh, love to express themselves through the tools that they use. So what you mentioned is that there's this idea um, that there's kind of two schools, and I'm air quoting, uh, of of testing theory as part of the meta testing part that revolve around the use of test doubles. And so, as a quick kind of explanation, uh, w- when you're writing a test, there's usually a bunch of, of things that the code that you're testing depends upon. And so so the the London school and the Chicago school take two different approaches to what we do with the dependencies. The the one school says we want to use um, tools that allow us to create pretend versions of these dependencies. I mean, the correct term is test double, but people usually lump them all together and call them mocks, right? So when you hear a tester talking about, oh, I have to mock this, or there's a mocking tool, that's generally what they're talking about. So it's the idea that you use these specialized tools to create replacements for the dependencies that you that you're need for your test, and that you're putting them in, you're creating dependencies that are in a specific state that you need them just for this test. It may be, I need to create a pretend um, object that handles database connections. So rather than have it to connect to a real database, I can use a tool to create a fake database object. And then my code knows how to use this thing, and it doesn't need to know that they're not talking to the real thing. That's a strategy if you're looking to have uh, a test suite that runs really, really fast, that you don't have to rely on outside database systems and third-party API calls on somebody else's service, you know? And then there's the other side that says, whenever possible, you should use the real thing, meaning that you should be ne- you should not be using these test doubling tools, that every chance you get, use the real thing. And it doesn't matter if you're talking to a real database or you're making a third-party API call to somebody's service. So, you know, it's... Chicago London School, like even even the testers have to be silly enough to try to put themselves into tribes. And so I found that sort of argument. It's interesting because it's almost like by declaring that there's two schools, people want you to declare where your allegiances lie. When the truth is you don't really have to ever declare an allegiance. You can just do whatever fits the situation. I've written tests where I've used the doubling tool to create fakes of everything. And I've used tests where I've, uh, I, I've, I've used the real thing. Sometimes you need to use the real thing to make sure stuff is working correctly. And sometimes you want a nice quick um, test because slow test suites are ones that nobody ever uses. So sometimes the goal is 
I need to create as many tests as possible, and I need the developers to, to use them all the time. So we're gonna we're gonna sacrifice using the real thing for putting a bunch of work into creating fakes, but the whole thing will be really, really fast, and therefore people will want to run it more often and people won't ignore the test. So, you know, there you have it. Chicago versus London. Yeah, thanks for that. That was really clear. And uh, as you know, as we were talking about before, the I mean, the consequences of the choices that you make when you're deciding how to test things, uh, you know, are real. Um, and, uh, and as, and as I think you're sort of well, so well pointing out, you know, one should not, uh, become, um, ideological about it as it were, you know, just remember that there, these, there are different approaches are manifested and expressed in different ways, but that one should pick and choose what's best for the situation one's in. And the... yeah, the, the thing, the interesting thing about that is that I, I really think it benefits, uh, people when they're first learning, you know, a set of tools or first learning some programming techniques to, you know, kind of pick one approach. And then once you've got that mastered and you understand, you know, the trade-offs that you're making, then it's time to introduce the other thing. Like I tell people, yeah, I was always a big believer in using doubles because I like my test suites to be fast. But yeah, there are times when I see see the benefit. The problem is like it, it, people, again, this is also a software development argument about people saying, I don't need training wheels. I don't understand why you're creating a framework or, or a set of tools that are intentionally limiting me, that there's all this overhead. You know, sometimes it's like, yeah, you need to, you, you can see that now because you have experience with it. But for a beginner, you know, beginners with these things, it's like the idea of a kitchen with super sharp knives. When you're teaching your kid to cook, I don't think you want to give your kid the first time they're doing stuff the sharpest knife because they may accidentally slice their finger off. But, you know, an experienced chef shouldn't be afraid of a sharp knife, you know. I've always seen that kind of cooking analogy is an interesting one. But, like, you got to learn the basics. And then once you've learned the basics and you understand the trade-offs, then you can start kind of picking and choosing. Well, you know, I of these five things associated with the Chicago school, I like three of them. And I'm willing to toss away the other two because I understand the implications of tossing them. But people, like, sometimes they think they understand, but they just simply – they've – they simply have lacked the experience to 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 know that they don't know what they're tossing away. And you know, again, with software, because we have so much information available to us online, it's very easy to find uh, conflicting opinions about just about anything, any practice in, in software development. So it's it's it, I, I tell people, uh, you know, I'm sorry to tell them, but experience is the only teacher that is really worth a damn because you only learn by doing stuff, and you even learn more when you do stuff and you get it wrong. Um, speaking of uh, meta games and experience, um, normally at the end of these um, interviews, I like to ask people about their experience using LeanPub, but we've all, already gone through that. Um, so I wanted to actually ask you about um, the development of your online presence, with you've been, which you've been very successful at in your use of Twitter, um, which is something that anybody who's listening, who's thinking about writing a book, I mean, you know, there's there's the writing part, which is very important, but there's also the getting the word out and uh, selling the book part. Um, that really matters. And I was wondering if you could talk about how perhaps your approach to, say, using Twitter or um, uh, otherwise managing your identity has maybe changed in the last four years. Um, yeah, actually, it's kind of interesting. I mean, uh, to be completely honest, this kind of branding as the grumpy programmer has worked way beyond uh, what I ever thought it would do. It's been far more successful than I ever thought it would be. And so, I mean, I think a couple of things that have really helped in that regard is kind of, I, I first treated 
I first treated the the grumpy programmer stuff as a persona. So on Twitter, I acted very, very differently from how I was in real life. I was way more over the top and way more aggressive. And was, uh, you know, as my friends labeled me a, a Twitter performance artist, where I used Twitter as a medium to to market my stuff and pretend to be something that, whereas there was a core of me in there, so much of it was exaggeration. I find it got to a point where I had to finally, like people would meet me in person and they're like, wow, you're like, you're nothing like your Twitter feed. And I'm like, that's because I'm a real person. I'm that a lot of that stuff is marketing and attempts to be funny and, and all part of like building, building a brand. And so that worked really well. I've, I've toned it back in the last couple of years where I think what I'm doing on Twitter is a lot more representative of, of who I actually am as a person, but the consistency in the messaging is probably the thing that I would recommend to authors. I mean, when I, you know, four years ago, I didn't have quite the Twitter, uh, uh, presence and following that I have now. And so, you know, it was the combination of the books and the willingness to talk about it on Twitter. And because uh, it was mostly Twitter was my main outlet. It still is my main outlet for marketing, but engaging with people and then going on, you know, in my industry, there's lots of opportunities to speak at conferences. So go and speak at conferences and do stuff. So, you know, it, it, slowly building the brand up and staying on message and reminding people, hey, are you struggling with this testing thing? I've written a couple of really small books. Think about if you're charging 150 bucks an hour as a, as a consultant, my book that costs you 30 bucks, you'll make more than your $30 back the first time you go and do one of these things because I've helped you take a whole bunch of shortcuts. So like if people are, you're absolutely correct. The writing of the book is one thing. The marketing is a completely different thing. And that required, it is a lot of effort. You can't just write your book and put it out there and expect people, uh, lots and lots of people to stumble across it and throw money at you. It requires effort. It requires messaging. It requires understanding that, that, you know, you decide what some people might think. You actually know something when you've sat down and committed a whole bunch of stuff out of your brain and, in, and into a book. And so those messages, stay stay focused, stay consistent, remind people, hey, you have this problem. I have the solution. Check out my books. Be open to interacting with people. I give lots of free copies of my books away to user groups. And, you know, um, for my friend Ed, who is doing a fundraiser for his little um, nonprofit that he runs, I gladly gave him a bunch of books to, to give away. So, you know, the, the marketing message really makes really makes a big difference. I definitely see, you know, I have a base level of sales that happen every month, but I can always see when I've been actively promoting and doing stuff or when I've been literally mailing it in and doing nothing. I can always tell. And um, one of the things you do, I mean, you do write, write uh, uh, pretty consistently, I think, on your blog. And one thing you do is um, share things about yourself as well, which I think probably helps people establish a connection. Um, uh, and this just reminded me, maybe it was from a long time ago, but did you write a blog post about allowing yourself to buy a nice car? Yeah, I did. Yes, I, I, I did. If we could just close uh, on that because I remember, I remember really enjoying that, that piece. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting because one of the things yeah, that's a very interesting story. So, like a number, like uh, I've worked from home um, for a variety of different companies for a super long time. So I never really needed a decent car. I always made sure that you know my wife and I, when it came time to to you know lease a new car or get something else, I always made sure my wife had the nice car and the new one because she needed a super reliable car to get back and forth from work. So I had an old beat up Ford Taurus that I bought from a car auction uh, like ten or eleven years ago, type thing. So after after a really long time, I was like, okay. Uh, you know, um, uh, you know, I'm pretty transparent about my personal life online. I mean, there are clearly areas that 
I don't talk about it. I try to avoid talking about my wife and, and talk about my kids without asking them because, you know, it's not fair for me to blast all their details if they're not cool. I'm, I'm a pretty open person about all things, book sales, money that I make at my job, all that stuff. So so I'm like, okay, I'm doing pretty good now, and I'm sick and tired of this car, and I want a nice car. I want to get the nice car for once. So this started a little dance with, with my wife and pointing out to her, yeah, I got all this money over here from the book stuff, and look how crummy my car is, and you, know, you always get the nice car. And, you know, Isn't it time that I actually got kind of a nice reward for all these years of, of working and, and, and all the time, uh, you know, this crummy car, and it broke down a whole bunch of times, and she was like, ah, oh, you work from home, what do you need a nice car for? And so, you know, eventually, um, you know, we had to go on a long trip in my, in, in my car, and my wife broke down and said, all right, that's it. You can get rid of this thing and get yourself something nice. So what I did do was, uh, you know, I had wanted a BMW for a while, but I, I couldn't afford a brand new one. So I bought previously enjoyed one. But to really reward myself, I got a custom plate for my car. So the custom plate on the car says test more, which I thought, and I would just tell people, look, if you work as hard as me and, and tweet 50,000 times and constantly evangelize about testing, you too can end up with a super sweet car and a custom license plate. So it's like, you know, a bit of a tongue in cheek thing, but also pointing at people, you know, you shouldn't be afraid to reward yourself when you've done a lot of, you know, like I said, I've been doing this job for a super long time and you should never feel bad about rewarding yourself if you've done a bunch of work and and you want to do something nice for yourself well you, you you shouldn't feel bad about it and so i did not i didn't feel bad at all about finally getting rid of my my 2000 ford taurus and getting myself a 2006 bmw 325i that i'm very happy to drive and i keep in really nice condition and so it's you know Again, it's part of the openness stuff, and people were like, "If you doubt my commitment, it's like a nice joke, right? If you doubt my commitment to testing, check out the license plate on my car." You know that idea that the the persona is total, and and at the same time, uh, you know, I'm willing to poke fun at myself, but at the same time, I'm also well aware that I do need to reward myself because for me, there's way more to life than just work. You know, um, it, you you can't they don't load up all the cash with you when you go on to whatever happens uh, after you pass away. Hold on one second. Okay. Well, See, that's a perfect example. And yeah, my daughter just came in, and that's a perfect example of there's way more to life than just me. Uh, uh, you know, if I had a job working 60 hours a week, uh, the, uh, before we stop here, the main reason I started working from home was so I could spend time with my kids because I was never seeing them. So it's just great. All these years later, uh, I'm able to enjoy uh, enjoy that decision I made 11 years ago to say I'm never going to an office again. Yeah, well, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, uh, I mean, that's a great story. Thanks for that, and I'm really glad to hear about how things have gone in the last few years and your and uh, that um you know perhaps some of your lean pub sales played a role in getting you that that nice car eventually um and I wanted to say uh, thanks for taking the time uh to talk I really enjoyed it uh I remember enjoying it last time and it was great this great fun this time too uh and uh thanks for uh being a lean pub author uh, thank you. I, you know, lean, getting involved in Lean Pub was probably one of the best things I did for my career because it allowed me to, you know, get my views uh, expanded to a larger audience. And in the end, I, I honestly believe all the book writing stuff has led to uh, to the career that I have now. And if I hadn't made that decision four or five years ago to write a book, uh, I don't think my story is anywhere near as interesting. Well, thanks, thanks, thanks. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think that'll be good inspiration to a lot of people listening. Uh, and thanks again for uh, doing the interview. Thanks, Len. Thanks.